Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 38, where we interview Philip Taylor from PT Money and FinCon. Our baby got to be one years old. We're about to kind of have the birthday party there for the one year old. And I was assigned to a trip to India three weeks over that whole time frame. So her birthday was going to be like right in the middle of that. And I begged my boss, like, you got to get me out of this. You know, I, I, I can't leave the States while my kids turn in one. I really couldn't bring them with me on that trip. And so it was just putting us in a situation where I knew my for my wife, it was super important for me to be home. And so I said, well, babe, there's only one answer here. I need to quit. And then I could be home for our daughter's birthday. <laughs> and so It's time for a new American dream. One that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench, and I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy? Scott, I'm so fantastic today. How are you today? I am doing great. It's a, a very big privilege to interview PT, who's one of the you know one of the really early guys in this whole financial dependence and money blogging sphere. Yes, I didn't realize he had started his blog in 2007. That's like he's one of the first. I think maybe there were some people doing it in 2005, and it was like two people. Yeah, I mean, he's a very significant part of the reason why this whole community around financial independence exists today and in, in its current state. Yeah, he's certainly given us in the financial independence community, the financial blogosphere, a, a place to really connect and grow and realize that we're not alone. We're not frugal weirdos. We're not financial freaks. We, well, we are, but. <laughs> You know, we're not alone. But we can be amongst our own kind. We can be amongst our own kind. And it's really nice to connect with people who are just like you. Uh, I have known PT even longer than you. So I am fangirling over here just a little bit more than you. But I've been attending FinCon since 2013. And I know that people who have listened to the show in the past will recognize the name FinCon because I think we've mentioned it on every single episode we've ever recorded and, you know, up to this one and down the road, we're still going to mention it because it's such a huge part of my life. It's such a huge, you know, I got my job because of FinCon. I've grown so much and met so many people because of this one conference and it's grown into this huge conference. The first time I went, there were 350 people and this year there's going to be more than 2000 attendees. But before PT created that, He was just a regular guy trying to figure out money. So today we're going to hear from PT about his story. Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, they've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high cash flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. 
Again, text REI to 33777. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. All right, PT, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going today? It's going great. It's so great to be here with you guys. I am so excited to talk to you because for those of you who have heard the show before, we've mentioned FinCon, I believe on every episode. And PT is the creator of FinCon. So PT has been a part of my life for five years, six years now, but I never really get a chance to talk to you because it's always in the middle of this conference that you're putting on. And while it is really one of the smoothest conferences I've ever been to, it's still a big deal and you've got things that you have to do. So I'm very excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm excited to be on here. I love talking about money. That's kind of what got me into this whole thing and encouraged me to start a conference to begin with. So happy to share my story. Well, boy, do I have a good show for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, let's go ahead and dive in. What do you consider like the foundation of your kind of journey with money? Yeah, I would say I grew up with a a CPA as a father and my mom was a teacher and a writer. And so naturally I found my way eventually to financial blogging, but uh, I just didn't pop out of high school and and start doing that. I followed in my father's footsteps and without really any lack of, it was kind of a lack of uh, decision on my part, just kind of fell into that. Like I'll go be a CPA like my dad. And so I, I chased that part of my career and education early on, left college with some, uh, personal financial troubles though. I left college with student loan debt as well as like some credit card debt and really just didn't have a clue as to how to like properly live within my means and manage my money. And I just didn't have many goals around my finances as well. So it was something I had a lot of, I guess, head knowledge for high finance, taxes, investing, but in terms of daily money management, I really struggled. And so I had to find new mentors early on. And that was through folks like Dave Ramsey, David Bach, Radio personalities, hosts, who people were really who were teaching personal finance early on that really educated me and helped me to kind of move from, you know, this kind of financial dummy to someone who was kind of understanding it and getting it. And then I found financial blogs and that really turned my life around because here were these normal people sharing their personal lives, personal finance lives with me and inspired me 
to then want to take myself to another level. So, so that's kind of me. I've got this like official financial certified background, but it really wasn't bringing me financial success in my life. I needed to really take ownership of it and own the personal finance side of it. Okay. So I've got like 27 questions based on just what you just shared with us. (laughs) First of all, you said you, you graduated college with some debt, some credit card debt, some, did you say student loan debt? A little bit of student loan debt. Okay. So what kind of debt are we talking about? Uh, Roughly 25,000 in student loan debt. And then, and I went to, I graduated high school in 94 to give people perspective here. So I had full scholarships, but I still took out money for a room and board and things like that. And then I had some credit card debt as well. It was roughly around 3000. Okay. So not crippling, but still more than you should have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it, but I was so blind to it. I wasn't paying it off every month. I just thought, oh, well, I'll just pay the minimum and that's cool. You know, I had no concept of the fact that, you know, here I was carrying this big, stupid consumer debt. Okay. So we talked to Jamila Soufrant and I don't think I made a good point here. She also has a finance background and she didn't know what she was doing with money. She wasn't conscious about her spending either. And I, I want to say that I think it's very interesting. So many people will email me or send me a note that says, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing with money. I feel really bad that I don't know what I'm doing with money. Well, here's a guy who's a CPA. You kind of studied money and you made some mistakes. Jamila studied finance and she made some mistakes. It's money's not that hard, but it's also not that easy. And if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know how to manage your own personal finances, it really doesn't matter what your schooling is. And, you know, there's people who are studying how to do this in real life and then don't do it in their own real life. So I just, I want, I guess I'm still kind of making a ham handed point, but I want to say that, you know, if you're listening to this and you're, you're having problems with money, it's not just you PT messed it up too. I messed it up too. Scott has been perfect forever, but he's, of course, you know, (laughs) so, but there you go. So it's never too late to turn your finances around. You can still do it. It's not like, oh, well, I guess I'm bad with money. I'll just never fix it. Just start today. Right, right. And yeah, don't use that as an excuse that you weren't born with it or someone didn't hand you the knowledge. Sometimes for me, I just needed an experience to kind of kick me into gear, right? What really catapulted me was when I got married and we wanted to buy a house. And that was in my late 20s. And that was really when like, I was starting to build that knowledge, but I was like, oh, I really need to know this now because this is going to affect the future of my life. So to a certain degree, I think that like experience is the best educator. And that's the time when you need to kind of act on it and make sure you, you seek out information. But I still think, yeah, our education system isn't necessarily set up to help us leave education with, with those skills, you know? No, I mean, it, like your education, I, I studied finance and corporate strategy in college as my two minors and nothing in there really was tied to personal finance. So you're just not, right. you're trained to think, how can I perfectly optimize business finance? <laughs> but there's no thought given to like, oh, I'm going to, how do I optimize my own? So it's kind of this like weird, very weird mishmash of what your kind of priorities are. I'm going to work all day making money for somebody else, but not give any thought to my own financial position. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and there was some naivety with me leaving college thinking, Oh, I'm going to get this accounting degree. I'm going to be a CPA like my dad. I'm going to make money, you know? And so money's going to cure all my ails. Right. And so I left college thinking, I'll just kill it with income, whatever problems I have with money management or debt, or spending, I'll just crush it with income one day, you know, sort of this wait, we'll wait till I start making money one day. And that lasted throughout my twenties, unfortunately. So what were your habits like in your twenties? Were you at least saving, matching what you made with what you spent? Was that, was that debt going anywhere? 
We'll yeah, just- I didn't start. I, I wish I had started that way. I, I think my first 401k, I, I didn't even get the company match. But then my dad found out about that a year or two later. And he's like, what the heck are you doing? You at least got to get that. So when, when I started paying taxes, that's really what was a big trigger for me because I realized my dad was like, you got to do this traditional IRA because if you do this, your taxes are going to go down by this much. You're going to pay less. And so the, for me, that was a huge trigger. Okay, if I contribute to my retirement this much, my taxes will go down this much and I'll basically get money back. That's kind of how I felt. Even though I wasn't going to be able to use it to the future, I felt like I was getting that money back. And so that really started motivating me early on. So I used things like the traditional IRA. I started investing through my company 401k and sort of believing in those systems and uh, paying myself first, putting those things forward and slowly but surely starting to work myself out of debt. I was a Dave Ramseyite, kind of believing some of that stuff. Got rid of the credit card debt, of course, first. And then went after our car loans once we got married. So that's kind of way down the line when I was 30. So I kept car loans and student loans in my life till I was 30. Okay. That's not an uncommon. Yeah. Uh, theme, unfortunately. And I graduated just a couple of years before you did. So I'm sorry, did you say you graduated high school in 94 or college? High school, high school high in 94. School. Yeah. Okay. So I graduated a couple of years before you and our student loan debt isn't anything like the current student loan right. load. And it's just amazing. And I didn't even have student loan debt because my parents were so generous. They paid for my college, but this isn't about me. This is about you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. So when did you finally pay off all of your debt? Uh, we, we started working on it whenever we got married. We had the two incomes coming in and we decided to live off of one income. So we had wised up. We had read David Box, Automatic Millionaire, totally gotten on board with Dave Ramsey and decided, okay, this is our time. We've got both incomes coming in. We can crush both of our car loans and crush both of our student loans over the next few years. And that's what we did. It took us about two and a half, three years. But uh, during that time, I was also starting PT Money, the blog. So I was journaling this process. I was showcasing like what my debts were and and really showing how we were kind of whittling those down over the years there. And uh, I, was, I think I'd say it was about 33 when I was completely debt free other than the mortgage. What um, would, would you did you have kids during this time? We had uh, kids our second year of marriage. So right in the middle of all that. Yeah. OK. And did your wife continue to work after the children were born? She stayed home. But okay. by that, but by that point, PT Money was starting to produce a little bit of income, and so my blog, I probably started replacing some of the income we lost and trying to knock out those debts. Okay, so you were working as a CPA hmm? and working on your blog, part time, and your yep. and your wife was staying home. That's it. Okay, are you comfortable talking about your salary? What sort of salary were you making as a CPA? Yeah, bring it on. Uh, my first job out of high school or out of college was thirty three thousand. And then by the time I left, I'd worked myself up to about 95000 So when I left corporate, I was making that. When we first got married, I was probably making somewhere around 80, 85. Okay. And your wife was making how much? She was making roughly, um, as a teacher, teacher in the school district there, I think she was oh. making around 50. Okay. So that's a nice chunk of change to throw at the, at the debt. And it, it took you a couple of years and you paid off all the debt? We did. Except the mortgage. Now, do you still have a mortgage? We do. We okay. have, uh, we've, we've taken our, our home we were in then, the, the one we bought, put 20% down, which it was a $200,000 house. We put $40,000 down. And that was something else we were doing during that three-year period. Not only were we paying off the debt, we were saving up for 
our first home and uh, saving up just, you know, in general for our retirement and our future. So we still have that first house. It's our rental property now. So we kept it as a rental property, uh, kind of an accident, somewhat of an accidental landlord situation there. And we can talk about that since I know you guys like real estate, but and then we've since bought another property, uh, which is our home now. And uh, again, try to put 20% down there as well. Um, we are slowly paying down our, the one we're living in now. We're not now, we're no longer aggressive in trying to pay down the old home because it's our rental property and we're just happy with that. But on our current home we're living in, we're trying to chunk big cash payments to that now. But in general, my philosophy on mortgage debt is, has been through the years to just kind of let it be something that it's a part of our life and use the money we're not spending to pay that down to invest as much as possible. As you're paying down the debt here, were you at any point, like, were you aware of like, oh, I'm going to get to zero and then my investment approach is going to change to this? Or what was kind of, what were you kind of planning to do with excess cash as you, yeah, as you got past the, the zero point? Yeah, it was more about because I'd started blogging and I wanted just more freedom and I wanted this blog thing to maybe work out and be my full-time gig. It was less about, you know, a particular finance goal and more about just a life goal of not having any burden in my life, you know, and, and sort of, and, and knowing that this is probably the only moment where we're both going to be working full time and maxing out our income. So let's use this moment in our life to like crush everything that's in our past that is a negative drain on us so that in our future, we're set up to do whatever we want. So that was kind of the mentality, but, but in general, yes. I mean, I, and knowing that you know, I could do much more in terms of investing and giving myself more of an off-ramp for when I did jump to go do the blog full-time. So what does an off-ramp look like to you in terms of, you know, quitting a job, making eighty-five, dollars $95,000 a year? Yeah. So for me, it was, uh, we were living pretty lean. So I would say it was replacing, you know, getting them the income for the blog up to about a third of that is what where we were at, third to a half. And then in terms of savings, we had roughly probably six to nine months before that point. And then during those years, we really tried to stretch that out to about a couple of years worth of living expenses. And so when I finally left in 2010, which was three years after starting the blog, we had about 18 to 24 months worth of living expenses saved up, I would say, in cash. Plus, you had a third of your salary coming in from income right. from, from your side hustle at this point, the blog. That's so, it. So I think that's a, like a, a really good take on the on like what like financial runway, like the amount of time you feel like you have before you can you, where you're comfortable, right? Is sure. Income and the cash, the cash cushion. Well, yeah, and not only that, but as soon as I left to go blog full time, I picked up a a blog editing job, kind of as a side hustle. I started freelance writing a little bit more, so I was hedging my. I'm super risk averse, like so. I needed like a big <laughs> runway and a big of these. A lot of these questions answered, so um, <laughs> I needed to make it safe and secure for me to jump. You know, because I was I was jumping at a time when my wife we had a nine month old baby, another one on the way pretty soon. So it was like. This is the worst time technically to jump, but we had set ourselves up financially to to make it and make it safe. What were you doing for healthcare? That was a big question and concern back then because back then there was no Obamacare. So I had to search the individual market. And back then, individual market health insurance plans in Texas would not pay for maternity. And so when we jumped, we were going to be facing, if we had another baby, we were going to be facing about a 35000 dollars payment for a baby, essentially, for a hospital. <laughs> So it was like, don't get pregnant, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, what we ended up doing is 
I did some part-time work for my father the next spring and I jumped on his group plan for a little while there. And so we had the baby wire on his group plan as a part-time employee. And then, uh, and then after that, it was kind of off to the races. So, I mean, that, that's such an obvious little hack. Like I'm sure that for many folks out there that are considering this leap, you know, Hey, if you can, if you can have any ability to time when healthcare expenses might come along, you know, there's options out there. Go get part-time work. Go get something that has healthcare. In your case, right. this is through your father, but I'm sure that there's other organizations you can join a particular skill and yeah, work well, something and, out. And now, and now there's Obamacare and then there's also the medical sharing communities, which is what we use now that are totally resourceful for that. So, Ooh, I want to talk about that. But before okay. we talk about the medical sharing, I want to I want to make a comment. You said you quit your job in 2010 because you're risk averse. And I'm I just think it's hilarious that you call yourself risk averse Yet you quit your very good paying job in 2010 when everything was going kind of into the toilet in the economy. And you started FinCon, which I kind of think is is sort of a big risk. I mean, I guess when you first started it, it wasn't. It, what was the first attendee list? Like 200 people? 200 people, yeah. Okay, so that's not nearly the juggernaut that it is now. But still, like, I'm risk averse, but I'm going to quit my job in 2010. So that's why I was <laughs> laughing. I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing at what you said. Sure, sure, um, sure. So I'm, I'm sure I know the answer to this question, but I want to just ask it anyway. How did your wife feel about you quitting? Because she's now a stay-at-home mom and you have this high-paying job that you are leaving. I'm assuming you guys talked about it. Sure, sure. We did. And she knew my, my desires where I was kind of going with my life. She knew the blog was playing around on the internet as she used to call it, uh, <laughs> was, was starting to pay the bills. And she knew that it was something I was super passionate about. So she was supportive, but she was also practical like I was for the most part. And she said, you know, let's not quit for another couple of years here. Let's, let's keep going until we're really, really safe. And then I used a situation probably looking back that it was kind of sneaky to allow myself to kind of make the leap earlier. So I did a lot of traveling with this job and we would go international. And while my wife and I were young, married, didn't have kids yet, it was super fun. Even with the, our small uh, little one, firstborn, we would take her traveling. And so we got to go to Singapore, to Ireland, to all kinds of cool places. But then once the, our baby got to be one years old, we we're about to kind of have the birthday party there for the one-year-old. And I was assigned to a trip to India three weeks over that whole time frame. So her birthday was going to be like right in the middle of that. And I begged my boss, like, you got to get me out of this. You know, I, I, I can't leave the States while my kids turn in one. I really couldn't bring them with me on that trip. And so it was just putting us in a situation where I knew my for my wife, it was super important for me to be home. And so I said, well, babe, there's only one answer here. I need to quit. And then I could be home for our daughter's birthday. <laughs> and so I kind of, I kind of used that situation to kind of push her over the edge there. And she's like, okay, stay home, be here for the birthday. And let's see if we can figure this thing out. And if you can't, you're a CPA, you could probably always go back and find work. So let's go for it. Yeah. I was going to say, I quote Joel from FI 180, who was on our episode 11 a lot. He says, when I quit my job, I wasn't totally financially free but what's the worst that can happen? I'll go back and get a job. My worst case scenario is everybody else's everyday life. Mm. So the idea that this is some huge leap, you're a CPA, which is, I would say, kind of recession proof. I mean, people are still going to need CPAs no matter what. The teacher is a recession proof job, policeman, fireman. You know, there's a lot of things you can do as a CPA. No, you want me to be home. I guess I got to quit. Yeah. <laughs> 
and, and, and she's loved it too, because, you know, I've been obviously being able to be more present with our family and not, you know, have full control of our schedule. There's been some ups and downs, sure, emotionally and financially, but, uh, but it's been a good run and we're totally thankful that we've been able to do it. So what happens? So let's, 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 this is something we don't often get a chance to talk to, talk to people about because a lot of people are on the journey to FI or just FI. Uh, you, I don't know if you necessarily consider yourself FI at that point, but you consider yourself ready enough to go and pursue your, your blog full time and other ventures yep. full time, right? What happens after that fact? So what's yeah. the, what do the next couple of years look like for your income and, and financial situation? That's a good point. Cause even though I've been blogging for three years, um, I, FI wasn't necessarily something I put out there for myself uh, as a goal. It was just basically max out as much as possible so that I'd be prepared if and when retirement came. Um, and then here I am faced with now a new life situation of being completely free for the most part, being able to kind of call my own shots, wake up every, you know, no more Mondays in my life, wake up every day and just make the best of it as I can. And, uh, the blog was very passive in terms of income. So it really kind of felt, had that feeling of being really financially free and independent in my life. And I just discovered Jacob's blog. I forget when he started, but I was just kind of getting into FI. It was early uh, retirement that, extreme, right? Yeah. Early retirement extreme during those years. And I was like, that's kind of, that's really cool. It's really radical. Someone's like really pushing the limits to the height, but I didn't really like own it at that point. So, but yes, whenever I left corporate, had my blog going and, and was financially free there financially, I guess, free is what you'd call it. It certainly wasn't independent, but call them own shots. It kind of absolved me of like a future goal with fire in a way. Cause I felt like I'd kind of arrived in a way to the lifestyle that I wanted. It wasn't complete ultimate independence, but it, took, it allowed me to kind of take the pedal off a little bit. Right. So I wasn't pursuing my you know, I, I no longer, I basically, I guess, wasn't going to be nudged to pursue financial independence as fast as possible because I was totally just happy running my blog and eventually then running FinCon and having kind of both things going on and growing my little family. But I want to say, though, that the fire concept I love and it has come back into my life as it's become blossomed more in our community. And I love it, like I said, because it really raises the bar for consumers and for people in general. For so long, we've said, oh, say five, ten maybe 15% of your income and then you'll retire whenever you're 65 or whatever. And in this new community, this new insurgence of fire has really set the bar much higher. And so I think in general, as, as consumers see a higher bar, even if they don't hit it, they're going to be sort of pushing toward that, that higher plane. And uh, even if they just get halfway there, we're all going to be off in, in a better spot because there's more examples of people kind of pursuing more radical approaches to it. And so I just think it's all positive. And so it's, it's pushed me to kind of think about, am I really independent right now? And am, am I, do I want that in my life, uh, complete financial independence? And so it's been interesting to kind of kick that idea around in my head when I feel so free already. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the freedom that you get from not having to work at a job that you hate or just don't, maybe not even hate, just don't like all that much is fantastic. I still Every once in a while, I will talk to my husband who has quit his job and he will say, hey, how's work going? Do you still like it? I'm like, I can't believe I get to work here. Mm. Like, it is. I'm excited to go to work every single day. But I real I've had jobs that that was not the case at all. And even just like not working for yourself sometimes can really be like, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. And sure. I don't ever want to be a CPA. So 
I can imagine not wanting to be there. I don't blame you. <laughs> it's funny. I used to do uh, I used to do tax returns for all these businesses, right, at my CPA firm or at the CPA firm that I worked at. And I would go to after I would do the return, I would bring it in to my partner to get him to sign off on it. And I said, you know, this is a really awesome business. This would be really cool to run one day. Do you ever feel that way? You know? And he's like, nope. I just like doing their taxes. And it was like right then and there, I knew I was not destined to be a partner in a CPA firm. I needed to go find like my own thing. So. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, that's a fun story. Okay. A few minutes back, you mentioned that you have a medical expense sharing kind of insurance without a doubt, hands down. This is absolutely the number one question I get through email or Twitter or on the bigger pockets forums or anywhere people see me, they're asking, can you do an, an, a show about insurance? Can you talk about this? And, you know, right now it's kind of up in the air. They've taken some of the affordable care act mandates away, but they're like still working on fixing it. So I can't really have an, a, a show based on all of that, but I'm really glad that you have this uh, sharing. Do you want to name the company that you have the medical sharing with? And then we can, talk a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's MediShare and we started with them in 2015, I believe. Okay. And okay. So that's not the one that I was thinking of budgeting in the fun stuff, just had a baby through a different sharing program. And she said it was a great experience. She had no problems with that. They didn't like bulk at paying the bills. So it, it's not insurance, right? Nope. It's like a shared, I don't, I really shouldn't ask these questions. Hey, PT, can you tell us all about this sharing yeah. <laughs> experience? What is it and how does it work? That's how I wanted to ask that. Yeah, so medical sharing is is the best way to describe it. So essentially you're just sharing a community of people that have opted in to this program who share each other's medical expenses. So think about we all put our premiums, they're not called premiums, but we all put our premiums, monthly premiums into a pot every month. And then all the sick people raise their hand and say, I've got this bill. I've got this bill. I had this surgery, blah, blah, blah. So give me some of the money out of the pot. And that's how it works from month to month to month. So the sick people are the people who need it at the time of need get to use the money that's in the pot. Now there's restrictions on who can kind of be involved in that. So MediShare has certain requirements, lifestyle requirements to get into that pool to participate. And uh, that's kind of how it works. So after Affordable Care Act came out, we jumped on an Affordable Care Act plan. And then a, a year or two later, or a year later, maybe I discovered the MediShare thing and realized that it was an exemption to the Affordable Care Act. So if you got on MediShare or any of these medical sharing programs, even though it's not insurance, it's exempted out of the requirement to be involved in those uh, Affordable Care Act plans. So I was like, whew, there goes that big, massive premium I was paying for maternity, which I no longer needed in my life. So I was able to jump on these high deductible, I got paid, uh, it's a $10,000 deductible, they don't call it that, but, and then we pay about 250 a month for our premium for our family of five, so yeah. That's a fantastically low premium to pay for, to cover a family of five, right? What are those lifestyle requirements that you were talking about? So with particularly with MediShare, and I believe you mentioned budgeting and the fun stuff. Maybe she uses Liberty uh, Healthcare. I think she does. And so they're a non-religious, more of an open platform, I guess. But MediShare in particular is for Christians. And so you have to you have to claim to be a Christian and claim to attend a church service regularly. And then also a, a claim to live by a certain lifestyle, which I basically boil it down to like, don't uh, have sex out of wedlock and don't drink alcohol in excess. I mean, that's kind of the two big things. Basically, okay. if you if you were to get injured 
driving drunk on your way home from the bar, MediShare would not pay for that injury. And so they asked that they don't have those risks involved kind of in their community. And so it's one part sort of about living a quote unquote Christian lifestyle. And then one part sort of protecting the people who are providing money for the pool. Okay. And this is something that they could do because it's a private organization. They're not discriminating against people. They're just saying, Hey, this is our requirements. Is that, that's, that's, I guess that's not discrimination. I know that there are others that, that have different, I mean, they're discriminating against people who drive drunk. That's against the law anyway. So maybe the police are discriminating against people who drive drunk too, um, (laughs) by not letting them do what they want. It seems like a great program and something that I don't know. I'm sure perhaps there are other options out there for lots of different situations. I don't see why you wouldn't want, why you'd ever want to drive drunk. <laughs> so <laughs> why would you ever cover that? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But for non, yeah, yeah for non-Christians, non-Christians there's options as well. Go to, go to Liberty. That's the one for folks who don't necessarily need or want to proclaim a religious, you know, aspect to it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I've heard a lot of people are on Liberty and they have a lot of success with it. Now, is there anything medically speaking that they won't cover like regular surgeries? Do they cover is, is there anything they don't cover? Yeah, anything major or unexpected, they will cover. Okay. Uh, as long as it, you, you know, I have my $10,000 deductible I have set. So anything above that $10,000 for the family, that they will they will cover. Up until that point, I'm totally happy paying for it. We just don't have medical expenses in our life. We just don't have them other than annual checkups. And so this works out for us. People who have chronic health issues or having a baby in a few months or who have just something sort of they're expecting already probably need to talk to MediShare first about like how they're going to kind of balance that, uh, that sort of ongoing medical need or the baby situation. Because they probably in those cases either have to prepay some of those costs, start prepaying some of those costs. And I'm, you know, not officially speaking for MediShare here. So you'll have to ask them, but. Yes, uh, I wanted to make yeah. that point too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pre- prepay some of those costs for the baby. If it's a chronic health thing, you know, odds are they, they probably just will reject you at that point. Like, like insurance used to do before uh, the Affordable Care Act. Right. Well, well, this is great. I mean, so if you're considering early retirement or you're considering just even going off and being an entrepreneur or a landlord full time, whatever it is that you're, you know, moving away from traditional full time work where your employer sponsors your health care, this is a great option to look into, MediShare and Liberty, right? And see if there's a, a way that that can help you. Do you have any other challenges that people are overcoming when they are leaving work that you've come across over the last couple of years? Yeah, uh, I would say two, two of them, like managing cash flow for your business, right? So when you got your employer, you've got the regular paycheck coming in. And so as kind of having your own thing, you've got to kind of manage that cash flow coming in. Uh, and I would read a book called Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. I'd highly recommend that to any business owner out there who wants to basically apply the pay yourself first financial automation tactics that they norm- that you think, oh, it's just practical for your personal finances. Everyone follows Ramit Sethi's advice and David Bach's advice of automating your finances and paying yourself first. Do the same thing for your business. That's essentially what Mike McCallum's talks about. And he sets up a system of bank accounts, transitioning the money to make sure that you're setting yourself up to, so that you can pay your taxes when they become due. uh, And so that you're basically guaranteeing profits for yourself in your business and treating it appropriately. And then I would say, making sure you don't neglect saving for retirement. Oftentimes, and it took me a year, even as financially savvy as I was, I just sort of sat around for a year thinking, oh, I'll get to that solo 401k or set IRA one day. 
And then a year goes by and you realize you haven't done it, you know? And so make sure you have a plan for that as well. as to where, how you're going to continue your retirement savings, even if you jump to uh, self-employment. And I chose the solo 401k at first because I was self-employed and I was the only person in the business, as well as my wife, she can be on that as a solo. And then now that I have employees through FinCon, uh, we run a simple IRA for that. And so just investigate what plans are out there that you can jump on, automate it just like you would your normal 401k and pay yourself first. These are really good points. And the first point about just cash flow and all that, we had a a post on Bigger Pockets a couple of weeks ago and the guy was a landlord and he's running a business and he quit his job and he's reinvesting all the cash flow of his business back into the business and nice. his, and we're li- they're living off the wife's income <laughs> and she is getting mad at him. But he, he said, he says this to the post. I won't, you know, you could go find this post if you're interested looking for it folks. But and he's like, you know, she's not being fair. She says, I'm not contributing to the household. And every single person who's a retired landlord of this thread is like, yeah, you need to contribute to the household. You got to take <laughs> money out of your successful business and use it to live your life. To yeah. some extent, at some point, right? And I think that would be difficult, I think, for a lot of people who are used to saving all the money from their job and putting it into this to actually begin living on it. And I think that maybe there's a there's some merit to going through that thought exercise of how you're going to actually withdraw from your yep. investments and your business after you leave. So. <laughs> yes. And what you are forgetting, Scott, is that he had something like a $500 a month truck payment that yes. she was footing yeah. the bill oh for. My oh my goodness. There was, it was like he was yeah. taking every penny that he was making and throwing it back into the business and not putting any of it towards the finances. And his wife started feeling resentful. And I would like to invite them to have a conversation. Talk to each other and, you know, talk about your hopes and dreams. And maybe you're about ready to start taking money out and putting it. Or maybe you've got this like really big deal you're working on. Let her know in advance. Oh, it it seems that there's a lot of lessons to apply there in general, though. Just like if you're going to leave your job, you know, how are you going to continue your contribution to the household? However, that is with, you know, and get along with your spouse, whatever way that means to you. And taxes as well, I assume, are, are points that are made in profit first. Actually, I haven't read the book. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And uh, Mike Michalowicz has a way of kind of creating a story kind of around it as well that makes it a totally engaging book. I would highly recommend the audio version of the book, though, if you check it out, because Mike's got a way of just riffing and presenting it in a real positive way. Nice. Nice. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. 
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. So uh, let's move on to the next stage of your life then. You have quit your CPA job. You're working at PT Money full-time. You're blogging. Whose blog? Do you want to share whose blog you were editing? Because I think that's uh, kind of cool that PT used to edit somebody else's blog. Yeah, I used to edit the, it was actually a company blog, a bank, Pier Street. I don't know if you remember those guys. Oh yeah, I know yeah. Pier Street. A reward uh, checking account. And okay. uh, so I was their blog editor for a while. That's cool. Yeah, about six months there. It was a good paying gig. And yeah. I got to basically just invite all of my blogging buddies to come get backlinks for their for their own blog. So everyone was happy. Wow, That's what awesome. a tough job. <laughs> okay, so when did you get the idea to start a conference for financial media? Yeah. Um, yeah. The first one was in 2011. Mm-hmm. And there were like five personal finance blogs at the time. So how did you know that this was going to be 
a success or why did you think this was going to be the success that it has grown to? Well, I just fell in love with the community. You know, I started my blog in 07 and uh, it was as a result of me just loving those five personal finance blogs that you <laughs> said. Actually, there were a lot more out there. And honestly, when I started in 07, I thought there are too many blogs. I, it's, I don't have permission to do this. They don't need <laughs> another voice out there. And that was in 2007. But yeah, it was just a community of people that reached out to me and basically said, you know, you're doing good work at PT Money. Let's collaborate. The blogosphere was very collaborative. We would comment on each other's sites. We would guest post all the time without it being very like, you know, financially motivated necessarily. We just like were totally geeking out about personal finance and sharing ideas with each other and, and supporting each other because we were the weird people online talking about money, right? So there's a natural bond like, oh, you're you're sharing what you're paying down, your, you know, how you're paying down your debts. You're sharing kind of what your goals are for the future. So it created this natural intimacy with each other. Even though I was just PT back then, I was blogging anonymously. I was building these relationships. And then I started forming, we started uh, forming little forum groups or basically online groups where we could actually just talk back and forth with each other in real time. And it got really exciting then because we started sharing ideas and helping each other's sort of businesses grow. I started going to Blog World Expo, Affiliate Summit, and checking out these other conferences and just saying to myself, man, this would be cool if it was just all the people I really want to talk to, all the other personal finance bloggers out there. <laughs> and it was like, ding, 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 let's do this. I created a map. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's the personal finance bloggers world map. So I've plotted all the personal finance bloggers in the world on a map and I allow people to kind of self-submit to that. And I just said, this is cool. You know, we're all over the world here, all the United States, like seeing where kind of where everyone is. And I said, what if we just all got together, you know? And it was about a year after I'd left PT Money. So I needed another side gig. I'd, I'd quit the blog editing thing. I'd stopped freelancing as much and I needed a side hustle. And so uh, I was up late at night with talking to my wife and just said, babe, what do you think about this conference idea, the financial blogger conference? And I think it was probably like the 16th conversation I'd had about with her about the idea. <laughs> and she finally just said, get up out of the bed and go start the darn thing right now. So back then my uh, office was literally in our bedroom. So I went over to my computer and started registering domains. I remember, and like, even like installed a theme that night, but, uh, you know, just started inviting all these people that had become my good friends online. And I'd met at various conferences and just said, Hey, let's do this. You know, it's time. You know, our industry has grown to a, a place here where we need to have kind of an annual get together. So let's do this thing. Yeah. And that has grown from 200 people in 2011 to how many people are registered this year? 2000. Yeah. We'll have over 2000, which is crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that is crazy. And, and, and it's still the right people. It's people who are concerned about helping folks with their money, guys like you. And to have 2000 people in a room together who all have that kind of same mission, we're all out there finding the same beast of financial illiteracy. It's uh, it's pretty cool. It's a great, great group to serve. And the, the community really existed before I had the event for them. A lot of people give me credit for sort of fostering them or coming up with this idea, but it really just came out of an outpouring of what this community has done for me and my life personally. And uh, it's really special each year to kind of serve them. This is my favorite conference of the year. This is like the one that I don't, I don't miss. So or at least awesome. I, I won't in the future. I missed it two years ago, but uh, <laughs> it's just so cool to see all of these folks that are changing the world financially all in one place. You know, all of my heroes <laughs> are sure. at this conference. So yeah, thank you for putting it together. It's one of my favorite times of the year. 
You're welcome. And I had no, you know, event planning experience. So it was just something I put out into the universe and said, I'll figure this thing out along the way. And the good thing about a conference is like having a baby. Like you can kind of study up on it. You got nine months to figure it out. Right? <laughs> now it all comes down to those four, da- four days. You got to do it right during that little time frame. But we had all this time to figure it out. And I, I enlisted a bunch of help, a bunch of people that I knew from college who were kind of skilled in event planning and technological stuff. And then I just really reached out to the community as much as possible. So I took surveys, did polling, got everyone on the email list and said, you know, submit your speaking ideas. So I tried to make it open source as possible so that when people got to the event, it was like everyone felt like they owned it. You know, everyone there was like, we did this thing. I was like, yeah, we did this thing, you know. And so ever since that point, people have have a sense of ownership of the event and then they want to share it as well with the world. So it's a really cool business to run. Yeah, I have not talked to anybody who was like, nah, it's okay. (laughs) Give us a quick overview of, of this year's. Yeah, so this will be our eighth one. We'll be in Orlando, Florida, and uh, this will be September 26th through 29th, and it'll be a a great four days of fun. We'll have uh, great keynote speakers from uh, Rachel Cruz, Gene Chatsky, the Today Show editor, uh, Mr. Money Mustache on Saturday, and then we have tons of breakout session, over 200 speakers, and tons of digital marketing and some personal finance topics there as well. We have a track called Money Conversations that's entirely dedicated to the personal finance topic. Uh, we've got a great expo hall, which we call FinCon Central, where all the brands come to do business with the creators, but also to showcase kind of what they're doing uh, new in terms of products and service offerings. Lots of parties, lots of fun, lots of late nights, lots of meals. So it should be, uh, it should be a blast in Orlando. Yes. It's uh, speaking from the last five years, it has been fantastic. I see no reason why number fantastic. six should not be amazing. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm not going to say that because... I don't talk like that. And in a way we're starting to become, (laughs) in a way we're starting to become like the comic con of money because listeners, readers, followers are also coming to the event we've discovered. And so we've created a special pass just for non blogger types who want to come to the event and just kind of be around all these financial geeks. Um, And so if you go to finconexpo.com and and look for the uh, community pass application, you can certainly uh, join us there for a reduced rate. Meet all of your favorite bloggers because literally everybody in the money space is there. So a couple of minutes ago, you said you you quit the blog. And when I asked you how you started FinCon, you quit your blog and was look you were looking for something else to do. What did that look like financially? You only had this one job, right? Doing the blog at that time? I don't don't know what I said, but I didn't quit the blog. I'm still running. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I mean, meaning I needed another side hustle. So FinCon had, I mean, PT Money had become my full-time thing and I no longer had a thing to do on nights and weekends. So I needed FinCon. So yes, I still, I still run both businesses. Now my ability to run PT Money has really waned in the past few years just because FinCon's kind of becoming a beast. I've got employees now and there's always more to do there. So, and it's fun, but PT Money's fun too. And it's my baby. It's what kind of got me into this. So I still enjoy going over there and writing occasionally and, and trying to grow that business as well. So I, I run both. Okay. I'm, I'm glad I misunderstood because I wrote down, quit the blog, question mark. In some ways I have quit it. I mean, because it just, I haven't been able to dedicate as much time to it. And that's my fault for not scaling it in terms of getting help to work on it and building a team kind of around it. When I could have, I probably could have invested in it. But uh, I think that 
the, for the so long, the blog had such a personal nature for me. It was, it's really hard for me to have outsourced it. And that's a beautiful thing about FinCon is from the start, I knew nothing about event planning and I immediately enlisted help and it's been a group project ever since. And so it's funny when you start one business, it's, you're able to kind of scale it and, you know, use other people to kind of help build it. But then another one was so close to me that it's been hard, a challenge to do that. So it's interesting how the type of business you're running, I think affects your ability to, to scale it. No, I, I think this is a really good point that a lot of – I think in the financial independence community, there's a lot of pride almost around just completely doing it yourself, right? But really, one of the big benefits of becoming FI or be, at least becoming confident financially is that you can go on to build a business, which is really the ultimate way to build wealth at, at long term, right? And it's more fun. You now have a team and a large event that you can run, which is probably somewhat passive, somewhat involves your time at this point. But you can scale this going forward and kind of do exactly what you want. It's because you hired other people and built a business around it, which is something that's really tough, I think, for folks that are starting to save their first hundred grand still to kind of wrap their heads around. Uh, and something that, frankly, the owner of Bigger Pockets, Josh Dorkin, also did really well alongside mm-hmm. you or, or along this kind of same similar journey. Yep, absolutely. Josh is a great community builder and so smart to have done it that way. And I, I don't know, I don't know uh, what it is about those blogs, why, why we kind of keep them so close. But yeah, it's certainly a blessing to be running a business that where you're able to involve so many people and, you, and your ego doesn't get in the way of, of sorting, releasing some of it to allow others to kind of participate and grow it. So it's been really cool to do. Yeah. Yeah, there is plenty of accolades to go around for everybody. You can, you can involve everybody and Hey, this person did a really great job doing this. And that doesn't diminish you at all. And since we're talking about accolades, we have to give a shout out to Jessica, the best ever Bufkin, who <laughs> is fantastic. You tell me. What yeah, she yeah, yeah. She's our official manager of events. I think is what she called or director of events. That's what her title is. But she started off the first year. She was my first contract hire for the, for the business. And she's a buddy from college who just has that organizing mind, you know, and can kind of put together the party. And so she's been working with the business ever since. And now she's full-time with me and she's just great. She knows everyone, uh, is a good relationship builder as well as a details person. So I needed someone like that to help me grow it. And she's someone also that I trusted very well. And so I tend to hire people that I have a lot of trust with first. And so a lot of my hires are people that I've known a long time, which I think is different than a lot of people tend to hire, but, uh, that's just my comfort zone for whatever, and I can, I can sort of absolve myself, not absolve myself, but sort of uh, feel comfortable knowing that uh, as more folks are kind of have their hands in the business, it's people at least I trust and have known a long time. So, Feel free to tell me if I'm completely wrong in this assertion here. But when you hired your first couple of folks, though, I assume you had to put in a lot more time and energy into these relationships with over the first year or so, maybe two, to get this up and running. And then you're kind of able to kind of hang back just a little bit more. Is, is that correct? Is there a kind of like a reinvestment, like almost like an anti-fi for the first year or so while you're building this business and particularly your, the trust in the first few employees? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love doing it. So it's hard to pull me away from it. Right. But there comes a point to where there's just too much work to do. And so hopefully during that time, you're, you've got someone there alongside of you that you're kind of talking to about it or, or quote unquote training on the, the subject, or you're there at least for questions for them regularly to kind of hold their hand while they're, while they're doing it. But for, you know, we're at a stage now it's been, it's great now where they're, you know, I say, let's get this done. And then it kind of just gets done, which is really cool. 
So awesome. Yeah, that's that's fantastic to have employees that you trust. It doesn't matter their qualifications if you can't trust them. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yep. Yeah, I just wanted to make that point though about hey, you, you become fire and then you build a business and then there's a recommitment and re-energy. You know, you're not free in this while you're training employees and all that ah. kind of stuff in the same way. But then it kind of gives you even more options after a couple of years of investment, which is kind of what I was thinking. I like it. Awesome. Well, is there anything else you want to cover before we move on to the famous four? Uh, I'm good. Whatever you guys want to talk about. I'm an open book though. You know, if you want to get into the dirty details of like, am I actually fire? Like where we are actually Ooh. on our retirement savings roadmap, how these businesses have kind of affected that. I mean, I, that maybe I think back at the conversation that might be kind of a missing, missing component. Okay. So PT, what do your finances look like right now? This is kind of like, I feel like I'm asking the teacher, you know, <laughs> about things that are none of the students business. Um, but let's talk about your finances right now. Are you now at a position where you could quit everything and never have to work again? Are you financially independent? We're not quite there. Okay. So we're close. In fact, we're, I would, I like to say we're at a place where if I stopped saving altogether now, my money in, let's say 10 years would be at a spot if the market, you know, continues as it has been the past hundreds of years, if we can expect the same six, seven, 8% returns that, you know, we've been seeing, I would be, certainly be at a place where we would be, I would declare like financial independence at this point. We could literally stop everything and would just withdraw from that amount the rest of our lives and be okay. So, um, yeah, so we've got the rental property coming in. That's about 4,000 a year. We've got uh, blog income from PT money, which is waned up and down, but right now it's probably on the high, high five figures. And then, in terms of FinCon, that has taken off the past couple of years. And so income-wise, that's uh, that's doing really well for us. But it's only been a two-year thing. So the previous six years were, were really kind of up and down. But all that to say, it's allowed us to really fast-track some of our mortgage paydowns. We, we just did a big chunk on that. We've got about a third of that paid off. Uh, with the expectation that we'll pay another third in December and then possibly another third next summer. So we'll be completely, we expect to be completely debt free of the house next summer. We're just kind of pacing ourselves there. And then I would say, you know, continue investing for retirement just because I like, you know, reducing my tax burden every year. I really let that drive me. And I, but I have no plans to quit working anytime soon. So I want to continue doing this, but, but yeah, we're, we're at a, a sweet spot that I would say, and if we stopped investing now or start saving now, our money would grow to a point to where we'd be fine. And so uh, if we put in a couple years of hard work, it's hard to know with a business, but because the business is growing pretty rapidly here. But I would say, you know, within the next couple of years of just if we continue working as we are, the trajectory will definitely be at a, plot, a spot where we could live within those that 4% for the rest of our life. So I got a question here for you. First of all, those third of your mortgage payments, is that for your primary home or your rental mortgage? Primary. Okay. Do you, and do you plan to pay off the rental mortgage? I don't. Okay. If my wife pushed, my, <laughs> my wife, she's pushing me on the home. And so we're doing that because she, she'd feel more comfortable with that. So I'm cool. But on the rental property, I really don't have, have it on desire. In fact, I was actually looking at like taking money out of that because it's the equity's gone up so much in it. If you actually look at the equity compared to the return we're getting is pretty terrible. So I've actually entertained like pulling money out of it and doing another real estate deal. And if I wasn't working on two businesses right now, I'd probably go have, have done that already. But, uh, but yeah, no plans to advance pay that, that rental property mortgage. 
the, the reason I ask is I got you know an observation here where you you said, hey, I've got five figure income from the blog, high five figure income from the blog. We have the conference, the business, and then you have this four thousand dollars a year from the rental property, and and I love to hear your thoughts on this. But to me, that seems for someone in your position to be more of an annoyance than a real contributor to net worth from a, from a cash flow perspective. So I, I was wondering if you are you are you going to buy many more of them to to stack that up or what? Yeah, I was just kind of wondering what your thought process yeah. is on that. So I have somewhat a desire to do that. But like I said, running both businesses, I feel like yep. I just haven't had time to chase that down. So I have started investing a little bit with Peer Street mm-hmm. kind of as a way to kind of scratch that itch. I like having the property. It's it's so little in terms of maintenance. I feel like we could jump back into it once our kids leave. Mm-hmm. So it could be a place like a pre-retirement house for us to have. Mm. And so I agree with you. If you look at the math perspective, it is an annoyance. Uh, cause it's, there's, there's a maintenance issue once a year and it's inevitably when I'm traveling or overseas <laughs> or something, and it's just not enough return for the money we have kind of tied up in it. So I'm on the fence about it, but it was our first home. So I, I probably, there's some like personal emotion. I laid the floors down in it, you know? So there's some of that kind of involved in it too. I mean, it's a great thought process and, yeah. and great problem to have yeah. with this, right? So I, I was just interested. I, I just sometimes see that observation sometimes with folks who, Bought one rental property, became an accidental landlord, and you know what? What's their plan to to yeah. use that going forward, or how to handle it? Yeah, good question, and I love being challenged on it. And I do on my blog, PT Money, I do the income report for the uh, rental property every year, so folks can go check out kind of what I make every year, how I have it all set up, how I've managed it. I do it all too. I don't outsource any of it. I do. Uh, as, as much of the process as possible because it's given me a lot of content for the blog and it's taught me some things and I've really enjoyed it. So, Oh, is it a business expense because you talk about it on your blog? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I haven't, I haven't gone down that road, but uh, let me ask my tax preparer. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So you're talking about a cash flow, which is negligible. Like Scott said, when you said $4,000 and like, $4,000. You're so busy. I, so I have never put on any sort of party besides a kid's birthday party. And that freaks me out. I'm not a good party planner. So the concept of putting on something as big as FinCon just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. So when you say that you make $4,000 on this, I'm like, oh, well, whatever. FinCon's got to be taking up all this mental space. But uh, that's it's, it's in Texas, correct? Can I say that you live in Texas? It is. Yep. And we are. It's a big state. So good luck finding you. Um, Texas is kind of going crazy. I know what city you live in, but Texas is kind of going crazy appreciation wise. I'm assuming that this has appreciated significantly. Yep. Yep. We bought it for 205,000, I believe. And it's now worth 370,000, something like that. Okay. So, yep. so that's, I mean, that's a nice chunk of change in just a few years. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, t- t- 10 years. Yeah. But still. Still. And it's it's bringing in money. You know, it pays for itself. Does it cost you anything to own it every year? You know, just the regular expenses of, of uh, mortgage and insurance and HOA. Okay. And a little bit of a little bit of maintenance. You know, the okay. air conditioner freezes up once a year, inevitably. So so you are. Uh, it sounds like you're funding your lifestyle off the blog and, and uh, FinCon. Right. And then you're paying down the mortgage. What do you plan to invest in or what are you investing in nowadays uh, with any surplus? So we uh, right now I've chosen to max out what we can do retirement wise each year through our plans. And then we are putting the excess to our down payment on our home. Okay. 
Um, that's the extent of it. I've, I mean, you could call it investing back in the business. I've done a little bit of that with FinCon in the past year, which I've taken my three contractors and basically brought them on full time. So that's been a big, that's been a big investment there. Having a payroll is a lot different than, than having contractors. So that's, that's been interesting, but it's been, it's obviously worth it and been a good, good decision, but I would consider that an investment of sorts. Absolutely. But, but, uh, to answer your question, maybe what you're kind of getting at is one, one area where I feel like I've, I've lacked is because I've chased these taxed advantaged accounts for so long, I feel like I, I don't have enough in tax, you know, taxable accounts right now. And so that's probably on my horizon is to start putting more money into, uh, taxable accounts so that if and when I decide to start living off of my savings, I'll have some of some money that uh, I can pull out that's not handcuffed by the IRS. Well, and it also sounds like from what you're saying that you could pull more money out of the business, but again, you're choosing to make calculated investments yeah. that are going to grow that, and that's a much higher return. You know, I don't know, I don't know if you've sat down and modeled it out. Maybe you have, but it seems like to me that there's probably a much higher return for investing in a business that you really know and have a unique ability to scale uh, rather than any other type of after-tax investment yeah. you can really think yeah. of. Yeah. And and if you look at my whole picture, I try to think about it in terms of just diversifying myself as much as possible. That's probably another aspect of why I have the rental property. That's why I have, you know, the multiple businesses. So that's kind of my philosophy behind it. But yeah, investing in my businesses has paid off big time. And uh, I would encourage anyone out there who's who's conquered the expenses, they're already living lean, and maybe they've got the five plan going, man, don't negate the aspect of, of starting a business for yourself. Just start with that side hustle. Who knows what that's going to turn into? Who knows when you'll get passionate? People may say, oh, I'm not really the entrepreneur type, or I'm too risk averse, like PT early, early on. Man, if you just get going with some kind of income stream and that you can push the levers on, you can push and pull things, man, it's exciting. And who knows, you just might get into it and you can just crank that sucker up to 11 and make a lot of money more so than you can typically in a, in an employer based uh, situation. So it's been real positive for me. So I challenge folks to, to seek that side of the equation. And just to chime in here, you know, I have the privilege of being able to pull some of those levers at bigger pockets and it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to, <laughs> to, 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 to look at those things and figure out, oh, where could I kind of apply pressure to this lever and move the business forward and all that kind of stuff, especially when your business is doing good things and people sure. love it, right? That's so, right. Yeah. Okay. And I want to tack on to your comment that, oh, maybe I'm not the entrepreneur type. We interviewed Nick Loper from Side Hustle Nation and the Side Hustle Podcast on episode 28 of this show. And he has an entire podcast dedicated to side hustles. Jay Money from Budgets Are Sexy has a whole page of side hustles. What is it, like 75 different things that you can do? And it they're not all just you going and starting a business. It's just another way to generate income. But maybe one of those things that you're doing to generate income can turn into a business. It doesn't have to be this like all-encompassing 2,000-person right. conference that you move every year, by the way, Denver's a lovely location. I know you've been here <laughs> once, but you should come back. Um, it doesn't have to be this huge thing. It can be a small thing that generates a lot of income. And so if you're thinking about adding to your income, check out those things I just mentioned. Absolutely. Okay. And a, pers a per personal plug here for my old podcast, the part-time money podcast, where I interviewed about 30, uh, part-time entrepreneurs kind of on the similar subject of side hustling before it was called side hustling, but that's an old podcast I did back in the day. But some of those stories might be inspirational as well. And awesome. can you still find that? Do you just, 
Is it on like everywhere podcasts are? It's in iTunes. Yeah. It's in iTunes. Well, or, um, yeah. And any, anywhere a podcast is, yeah, you can find it. <laughs> okay. This has been fantastic. And we've run very long again because it's PT and I never get to talk to him. <laughs> Okay, now it's time for the famous four questions. These are the same five questions that we ask of all of our guests. The first one is, what is your favorite finance book? Favorite finance book, I got to give credit to Mr. David Bach and the Automatic Millionaire. That really kickstarted it and for whatever reason switched the, flipped the switch in my head to really think about the future and really make some big changes. Yeah, that's a good book. Awesome. All right, what was your biggest money mistake? Biggest money mistake was pretty early on. I left college and I had the credit card debt, the student loan debt, and then I went out and bought a brand new car. And I didn't realize like I was going to pay, I was going to pay insurance through the roof. The payment was going to be like killing my budget. I got back home, had total buyer's remorse, called up the dealership. They were like, screw you. <laughs> you, you can't come back. What kind and, of car? Uh, it was a Montero Sport, one of the first uh, nice Montero SUVs. It was pretty sweet. Yes. Uh, I, I called up my dad and I was like, Dad, you got to help me in this situation. He calls the dealership up and he's like, I don't know what he said. But the, the next thing I know, the dealer's calling me and said, bring your car back up here. You'll lose your deposit, but come on back up here. So oh. I got to take the car back and get my old one. So dad wow. totally bailed me out. And I swear, I was like, that was the moment I said, I'm so ashamed of myself for letting my dad, you know, fix my financial life for me. I've got to get my act together here. So I screwed up, but I was able to get out of it a little bit. And then it taught me a lesson that I've carried forward. So I, I got a little tangent here for, for this. So you, <laughs> how much did you, did you lose in your deposit? A thousand bucks. thousand bucks. So I think that's really like a smart decision. Hey, you know, you have a car, it depreciates immediately off the lot. Can you pay to get rid of your car, even though it's an asset, even like that, that kind of hurts inside to pay, but that can be a really good financial decision if you've already got a nice car to pay to get rid of that thing and get a better one that's more economical. Way to put a positive spin on it, Scott. You're right. I mean, had I tried to sell it right then, you know, I probably would have had to knock five six grand off of it. So good point. But, but I'm, what I'm saying is that even if you had had to sell that, that car yeah. for five or six grand, you might've still been better off taking that loss immediately by yes. driving off the lot, selling it, and then getting, going back to your old car yeah. Uh, yeah. for the long-term finance, which I think is an interesting takeaway that I just can click in my head when you told that story. <laughs> yeah. And that's a big question in the bigger pockets forums is people say, well, I have this car and it's a lease and I immediately cringe. Don't lease a car. And I will get people who send me notes after I say, don't lease a car on here. They'll send me a note and say, oh, well, I want to get a new car every year and a lease helps me do it. Why do you need a new car every year? Right. You don't. Nobody cares what kind of car you drive. Okay. What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out besides don't buy a new car and have PT senior <laughs> call up and fix your problems? <laughs> you know, what's worked for me, what really worked for me because I struggled to save early on was, uh, and I'm going to sound like I'm repeating here, but really to just automate some type of savings, whether you're using your company 401k or an automated withdrawal from your checking account into a savings account or an automated withdrawal from your checking account into a Roth IRA, just get that going automatically. Go right now and set that up. Like open up the account. I don't care if you just deposit, start depositing like $1 regularly. If you get in the act of automatically savings, that will propel you to do more of that in the future. You've already got the system set up. And people who report doing automatic savings and then retiring successfully always say, they say the same thing. They always say, we never missed the money. We never thought about the money because it was happening in the background automatically. So get that going. Forget about that money. 
for the rest of your life until you need it and then <laughs> and then move on. Yeah, pay yourself first, automatic. I, okay. I love it. We we often hear track your spending in this category. This is this is you don't have to track your spending if you just automate your withdrawal. You can just skip that whole step and you're going to save all this money for retirement at whatever level you set up automatically. That's your pace and you, it won't even hit you. It won't even hit your account. You won't be able to spend it. Tracking your spending is no longer an issue. Not saying you save. shouldn't track your spending, but yep. this is a way to get around it if you don't want to. Save first, freely spend the rest. That's a good mantra. Okay. Um, you said a couple of times, set up an automatic withdrawal. Excuse me. Is that something that happens like you can do with your bank? Yeah, do several, most wa- banks- several ways to set it up. Uh, so obviously you can go to your employer first and say, Hey, can you automatically sweep this part of my check over into a separate savings account? I've got this IRA set up. Can you sweep some of my money over into that? Or you could do it from the checking account. Once your paycheck hits the checking account, then set up the automation either from the bank itself to push the money or from the financial institution to pull the money. Vanguard's really good because they know your annual maximums that you can hit from a tax perspective. And so setting it up for on their side, I think is best. Um, if you're trying to hit that annual maximum, for instance, with your Roth IRA, and it just pulls out of your uh, your checking account, you know, maybe the day right after you get your paycheck, or the same day, or something. Yeah, I like that tip a lot. But and- yeah, the, the 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 further you can push it on the front end of the transaction, so if you can get your employer to do it, that's the best because you literally will never see it. But outside of that, use it from the checking account and move it. Okay. All right. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? So uh, we got Halloween coming up, sort of, and I'm a dad, so it's the cheesy dad joke for Halloween. So why couldn't the skeleton go trick-or-treating? Because he I don't had, know. Because he had nobody to go with. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, I will laugh at that one. It's not a pun. That was a good joke. No bones about it. Oh, oh yes. God. That's See, skill okay. right there. I just want to tell everybody, Scott does not know these jokes in advance. I don't ask and I don't put them in the notes, the, the jokes like in advance. It three seconds at least to come up with that. So they got to get a little faster. That's scary good, Scott. <laughs> God, okay, I quit you, Bill. Uh, okay, so PT, where can people find out more about you? Uh, hit me up on Twitter at PT Money or uh, just go to ptmoney.com. It's my website. Of course, FinCon is at FinConExpo.com, and that's uh, that's a fun event. We'd love to have you at. Yeah, I can vouch for that. FinCon Expo is the best event. I go to several every year, and that's the one that I make sure is on my list. I don't have family that lives near me, so I have to kind of dole out my requests judiciously is the right <laughs> word. When I'm asking my uh, in-laws to come and visit or come watch the girls or my parents to come watch the girls. And it's always, well, I need, when is FinCon in September or October this year? And then when I, when I figure it out, that's when, that's the first request that I get covered every year. I appreciate Um, that, Mindy. Yeah, it's, it's the best conference. I learned so much every single year. Same for me. I'm not available that week. (laughs) <laughs> well, I look forward to hanging out with you guys and hopefully you'll do the podcast maybe live from ThinCon. We sure will. That. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We will. We just need to find a really awesome guest. Okay. So well, uh, 2000 I, can, to choose I can help you there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Out of 2000 people, I'm pretty sure we can find somebody who would like to talk about money on the show live. <laughs> All right. Well, PT, thank you so much for your time today. I know that we uh, do record these a couple of weeks in advance where this is actually happening before FinCon and uh, releases right before FinCon. So this, I'm sure you have a lot of things to do and I appreciate your time. Absolutely. My pleasure being on. 
Okay. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye guys. That was PT from uh, ptmoney.com and FinCon, uh, where you can find FinCon at finconexpo.com. What'd you think, Minnie? Oh, I love his story. I mean, I don't love that he graduated with debt and bought a car, a brand new car. I love that his, he was able to get out of it. That's awesome. Call PT Senior when you need to get out of your car debt. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great story. And he is really good with money and he did make a lot of great decisions. And it sounds like, like him, for so many of our other listeners, there's a book that turned him on and it was an unusual one. It's not one that we hear all the time on the show, The Automatic Millionaire. It's not unheard of. But uh, go check that one out. It's a, it's a good book. It's very it's exactly what he says to do. Automatically yes. save and invest and you will win, right? Yes. Yep. And I love his his tip. He didn't say track your spending, which is a great tip. I don't want to like dog that tip. That's a great tip. That's my tip. But, you know, automatically start saving. That's fantastic. I actually don't automatically save in the way that he's suggesting, I do max out my 401k every year and I do, you know, different types of saving, but I don't automatically save and I never automatically saved. And I think that would have helped propel me even more because, you know, if you can get your company to do it, you never see the money. You don't miss it. If you're having a hard time saving, if you're having a hard time, just not buying things when you have cash in your pocket, don't have cash in your pocket, get, get it out of your account, put it right into the the savings account automatically. And then don't ever touch that savings account, put it into a pre-tax or a post-tax investment, put it into just a savings account for a rainy day or whatever you, you know, whatever you need, but automatically pay yourself first is a great tip. Absolutely. And, and then we, we, one more time, we'll give a shout out to FinCon, which has been just such a, a resource for the financial independence community uh, and the bloggers and folks like us, the podcasters that talk about financial independence. It's a place where we share ideas and really kind of challenge concepts. We're constantly learning the new best practices. You know, uh, sometimes we're wrong about things that we thought were, you know, really like effective ways towards buy. And this is where that kind of sharing goes on. So big thanks to, to, to PT for putting that together and really helping us share ideas there. Yes. I cannot thank him enough for putting this, the show together. It was such a big part of my life. And I don't know if you caught it, Scott, there is now a community pass that you can get to go to FinCon and just kind of meet all of your favorite bloggers, favorite podcasters. So if you go, if you're interested in attending, we'll be in Orlando next week. I believe this comes out a week before the actual FinCon. Um, you can go to FinConExpo.com and get a community pass and look for me. I'll be there. I look like this. <laughs> yeah, me too. This is what I look like. <laughs> Have fun if you're listening to audio only. Uh-huh. Sorry. All right. Let's you close out, You can go in Mindy. and see us on YouTube. <laughs> okay. All right. From episode 38 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, where we interview Philip Taylor from PT Money and FinCon. This is Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench, and we're out of here. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. 
If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.